Hear with me uh, God's word from Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife, this is skipping down to verse 21, Uh, Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thanks be to God for revealing himself to us. Uh, I have loved being with you all this weekend. Um, Those of you who weren't at the marriage conference probably were just at KC Hour. Is that what it's called? KC Hour. So, anyway, I figure any way you cut it, you're bound to be tired of hearing me by now, you know? A woman told me once she'd been listing a bunch of my stuff in her car, like, you know, for several days. And at one point, her daughter in the back seat pipes up and goes, Mommy, I'm really tired of hearing that man talk. Does he sing? It's like, (laughs) trust me, he does not. Um, I'm excited about this opportunity to speak to you, um, because I love talking about psychology and the and I love talking about the sort of dynamics of relationships, like what we talked about during the Sunday school hour. Um, but that, I don't do psychology from the pulpit. Um, what I, what I want to do here is worship, okay? Um, when I have the opportunity, when I'm given the trust that your leaders in your session have given me to be able to speak um, here on Sunday morning, I want to lead you to the throne room of God. Um, we did a lot of practical psychology in the conference and in the last hour. Um, I have a real different goal for this time with you, um, and that's simply this. There's this little moment in John 12 where the disciples, these Greeks come up to the disciples, and they say to the disciples, Sir, we would see Jesus. And, and that's simply my goal. The sermon isn't going to be a lot of heavy application or one, two, three things for you to go do differently today. Um, we were practical, you know, all weekend with the conference. 
uh, all I want to do this morning right now with you is I want to pull back the veil a little bit and try to more clearly, more brightly show you your God. I want to give you a chance to remember again how wonderful he is. And I'll let his spirit deal with what sort of application that's going to have in your life, all right? That's between you and him. But as far as any of us, those of you who might not know him here, I'm sure you have a sense of what you think God is like. I'm going to tell you what I think he tells us he is like in his word. And those of you who do know him, I want to remind you of how he loves you and what his heart is like for you. Now, I'm going to do that by telling you a story about him. When I preach, I don't like to do a lot of heavy theology. I like Bible stories. You know, I really haven't moved that far beyond the felt board Sunday school lesson, you know. And why would I want to, man? Those are awesome. But um, <clears throat> I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about how he went about giving to us and loving us. Basically, all the Bible is is stories. It's, it's a lot of stories that are telling one story. The story that we call the covenant of grace. The story of how he went about saving us. And the stories in the Bible are all part of that one story. And we're going to look at one of them this morning. This morning, obviously, as you've heard from the scripture lesson, we're going to look at how God responded to Adam and Eve after the fall, after the first sin. What does God do? Well, you know how the story starts. Wasn't covered in the passage, but you know it. God makes this perfect world for his children, and it's full of blessing, full of deep intimacy and productive work and wonderful rest and provision of anything that they need. Deep provision for his creatures. Now, key word there. To be such a blessed creature like that, the catch was this. You had to stay a creature. All right? Am I going too fast for you? Creature means you're not God. God, God, you're a creature. Get it? Creatures don't get to make the rules. Creatures don't get to take whatever they want. Creatures don't get to sit in the big chair. Creatures sit under God. All right? Creature, not God. You with me? All right. So, by the way, that's what the tree meant. All right? The tree says, you wait on me. God says, you wait on me and I will provide for you. You go take on your own terms and you'll lose me and everything I provide, all right? Now, you all know what happens next in the story. Along came a spider and sat down beside her. And into this story comes the serpent. Now, what's the serpent's message? His message is just the opposite of God's message. God's message is, if you wait upon me, I will take care of you. If you wait upon me, you will receive. Satan's message is just the opposite. Not be under God and receive, but... If you wait on God, you're, you're going to go without. You're going to be left, deprived. He will not provide for you if you submit to him. you got to take. There it is. And Adam and Eve fall for this, as we all do every time we sin. And they break the covenant of creation, and they refuse to live under God's way, and they betray him. Now, this is cosmic treason, right? And even though there's only one commandment in the world so far, not even ten, it's a capital crime. And the sentence is death. And the world is hanging in the balance at this moment. What's going to happen? I want to look at the story from a little bit different perspective than it's usually told. Usually when people speak on this passage, they talk a lot about all the nasty stuff 
that's about to unfold because of their sin. And there's a lot of nasty stuff here, admittedly. I'll grant that. You got the curses. Man is going to get cursed at the level of his work. It's going to be painful and burdensome and futile. Ultimately, he's going to die. He's going to go back to dust. Woman is going to get hit at the level of her relationships with her children and with her husband. And to top it all off, they're both under the condemnation of God eternally, all right? These are curses. That's part of that death that God promised would happen if they violated his way, okay? But I think we know an awful lot about that. Sin, death, curses, all that. I mean, we're Presbyterians, right? So I want to take a little bit different approach this morning and say, yes, there are condemnations and curses that are going to come. But also, here in Genesis 3, as regards our focus of the heart of our God, we're going to see some of the most marvelous things that God ever does. So this morning, we're going to look at the good things that happen after the fall, all right? And not because I'm a naive optimist or something, but because... This encounter between God and Adam and Eve realistically is packed with covenant gifts, salvific gifts to them and us. We're going to see the beginnings here, the earliest rumors of our salvation being formed in God's heart. He is going to respond to all this death by bringing life, and I want us to watch him do it. We're going to look at five ways God's going to bless them and us in post-fall Eden. Number one, what's the first thing God does after his children break off relationship with him? The first thing he does is he looks for them. Maybe the sweetest words in all of scripture, Genesis 3, 9. He says, where are you? Where are you? I mean, here's God, right? He's the injured party, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when someone's hurt me, it's not moi's job to come back and, hey, let's talk, all right? What do we do? Say you have a group of friends, and y'all go to the beach together every year. But this year, you don't hear from them. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing these Instagrams of all of them at the beach without you. And they're like, you know, selfies and all this. You never heard about it. What are you going to do? How do you feel? Like, right, you're going to go down to the beach and knock on the condo and go, hey, y'all, I want to be with you. Where are you? Now, we're like writing you off. I get it now. Okay. The next time you see him, you're going to be like, oh, hey, how was the beach? You know. (laughs) I ain't fixing this. Okay. Instead, here's God. And all he has done is create a very good place for his children and loved them, and walked in the cool of the day with them, and give them everything they need. He's asked for one thing, they broke it. He is wounded. He is betrayed. And instead of blowing up the world, which would have been his right, he looks for them. Where are you? And he does this all through history. I mean, read him in the prophets. He's this aggressive, pursuing husband, lover, wounded by her infidelity, seeking his bride. I've sought you, I've, I've given you this, and you've turned from me. When he says to the prophets, you honor me with lip service, but your hearts are far from me. That's not like just a statement of judgment. That's a, that's a, a, a statement of sorrow. I want you, not a bunch of religious talk. Where are you? The most natural thing about being human is when we're hurt, we want to hurt back. We want to withdraw. We want to get even. 
God doesn't do this. He looks for us. Even when we're not looking for him. All right, now Adam's answer to his question doesn't offer a lot of encouragement. God says, where are you? And Adam says, well, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, which must have been an interesting sound. But he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Adam says he's afraid. All of a sudden, for some reason, he's aware of his vulnerability. He's aware of his nakedness. To put it in psychological terms, he felt shame, as we just talked about last hour. No longer naked and not ashamed anymore, conference goers, remember. Now, God knew that there's no way in their originally created state that they could be self-condemning. Okay? They wouldn't know anything about fear and shame and judgment unless something had happened. I mean, after all, if you don't have the knowledge of good and evil, you can't judge, right? You can't judge yourself. You can't judge anyone else. Get it? Not rocket surgery. I mean, if you asked, if you asked Adam before the fall, I believe this. If you asked Adam before the fall, is Eve a good wife? I think Adam would have gone, hmm, not sure what you mean. Um, she's Eve. God, I love her. She loves me. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Um, God's always calling things good and very good and not good. Um, why don't you ask him? He'll be by later on in the cool of the day to walk with us, and he's the only righteous judge, not me. See, do you see the realistic problem with the tree? Not just the obedience problem. The problem of eating of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we make this stuff too religious. This ability to be aware of goodness and evil, the ability to judge yourself and other people, is something God wanted to protect us from. He knew it would kill us. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Yes, bingo, we did. It destroys us every day. That's why I made such a big deal out of it. Anyway, so... If they're judging, God knows something is wrong. Houston, we got a problem, all right? So God asked them, who told you you were naked? In other words, how did you become aware of vulnerability and shame unless you learned about condemnation and judgment from the tree, all right? And, of course, Adam does what any self-respecting husband does. He blames it on his wife and on God, too. Actually, um, as we said in the conference, Adam manages to judge both God and Eve in one sentence. The woman who you gave to me, which I think is pretty good for your first day as a sinner. You know, it's like, this guy's he's amazing. He's really taken to this. Um, anyway, and then Eve blames it on the snake. And ironically, the snake's the only person who takes it like a man, and he doesn't blame anybody. Um, but anyway, God begins his maledictions, his curses on them all with the serpent. Now, a um, pretty huge cosmic shift took place about 10 verses earlier with the sin, all right? But in this interaction that's about to occur between God and Satan, there's going to be another shift that I think is just as great because the words that are going to pronounce the curse on, on Satan are also going to be the very words that are going to inaugurate our redemption, In fact, this curse is so important 
that it's been given a name by theologians. You know how theologians like to name stuff? Anyway, this curse is called the Proto-Evangelion, all right? Which, when I was a 23-year-old kid in seminary, I always thought that sounded like some kind of death ray in a cheesy science fiction movie, like, prepare to fire the Proto-Evangelion, you know? I think it works, don't you? You know? But, but think about it, root word proto, what's the prototype of something? This is the prototype of the evangelion, the prototype of the evangel, the prototype of the gospel, okay? My friends, our God is such, his heart is such that in his first blush, in his first reaction to our sin, he's already formulating a prototype of the rescue plan. It's just a teaser now, just four little lines. But the Proto-Evangelion is the first rumor of our salvation. Let's read it again, Genesis 3.15. God says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We could stand for the benediction there. There's your whole... Salvation universe, packed in the four lines. But let's unpack it. What's the first thing God says he's going to do here? And it's going to be our second post-fall blessing. He looks for us. Number two, what's the next thing that he gives us? First thing he talks about in the Proto-Evangelion. First thing he says he will do is, I will put enmity. Now, what does that mean? Like, why does enmity need to be put? Well, think about it like this. In this story as it currently stands, as we push pause on the video, they're frozen. What is the current status of the relationship between the woman and the serpent? I mean, if you have God's way over here and Satan's way over here, at this point in history, at this moment, who is the woman and all of her offspring with? At this point in history, Eve... And all of her children, raise your hand, are cosmic traitors. Okay? We're friends of the serpent. We're compadres. We're allies. We're simpatico. We're the ones wearing the black hats now. But God does this wonderful thing. He gives this beautiful gift. He declares that he will initiate a change in relational status between his children and the serpent. He says there will no longer be friendship between my people and Satan. There'll be enmity. Deep-seated ill will. And not only will there be enmity, there'll be enmity between y'all by the very act and design of God. I will put enmity. In other words, God is saying to Satan, you can't have them. They are mine. What an act of grace and love. God says, I'm going to personally be at work to destroy your affection for the evil one. I'm going to make you enemies. Now, my friends, my fellow children of God, don't you experience this in your life? Don't you feel this to be true? Don't you have areas of sin in your life that you hate? Don't you have ways that you act that are habitual and conquer you and you're sick of it? Isn't your heart broken and defeated by how much control sin can have over you? This passage says, take heart. 
This passage says that if you have that Romans 7 sense about your sin, the thing I wish I do, I do not do. In fact, I do the very thing I what? Hate. Get it? That's not an accident. What that means is the Spirit of God is alive and at work in your heart, pouring enmity on that sin. He is at work to bring you back to himself. I believe if he hadn't done this, the story would have ended right here because not one of us would have come back to him on our own. We'd still be hanging out with our buddy, the serpent. Dude, stop, man. That's where we'd still be. This is the earliest sign of God's regeneration in our hearts, bringing us to him, altering our tastes for him. Now, how's he going to pull this whole change in loyalties thing off? Blessing number three. He looks for us. He puts enmity. Number three, next in the Proto-Evangelion, he starts unfolding his plan of redemption. How's he going to do it? Well, I was an English major in, uh, in college, and um, there's a sense in which our eternal salvation begins with simple grammar. Because when he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, when he says that, he's talking about plural groups. The group of people who are the seed of the woman and the group of people who are the seed of Satan. But then, in the next verse, the antecedent of the term seed changes number from plural to singular and hope dawns again on planet earth because suddenly the term seed no longer refers to a group. It refers to an individual. He will crush you. You will bruise him. God is saying that in order for the seed, plural, to get saved, there will have to be a seed, singular, that will come. And he will do battle with the serpent, and the serpent will bruise him, but the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent. Get it? This is the pre-evangelism. Christ promised five pages into the Bible. God's promising a redeemer, someone who will destroy the destroyer. If you keep reading Genesis, you'll see some of the great figures of the Bible already looking for that seed, that one, they call it sometimes. When Eve has Seth, she wonders aloud if this one, this offspring, might be the one who God promised to restore what was broken. Uh, A few chapters later, Noah's dad wonders if Noah is the one who will bring rest from the curse. The name Noah means rest. These guys were looking out for this one that God had promised. They were listening to the Proto-Evangelion where it happened is my point, right? So he looks for us, he puts enmity, he promises Christ, he's still not finished. Two more gifts to come. Gift number four. Remember the first effect of the fall? We've talked about it all weekend, off and on different ways. The first effect sin had on Adam and Eve, that shame that humiliating self-consciousness. It used to be safe to be naked and not ashamed, but as a direct consequence of the fall, Adam and Eve want to hide. They want to hide from each other. They want to hide from God. They feel exposed. They feel humiliated. So what do they do? Well, one of the things they do is they make clothes out of fig leaves, which is kind of a ridiculous picture. I mean, A, have you ever felt a fig leaf? They're like fuzzy and prickly, and we're just not going to go there, all right? 
I mean, nobody said sin makes you smart, all right? So um, it reminds me actually of a client of mine who told me she had these two bad little boys, and uh, one day they took it upon themselves to, to see what it would look like if you took a carton of eggs and threw each of them up and watched them splat on the floor of the kitchen. So they went through an entire carton of eggs, and then all of a sudden, suddenly it dawns on them that this is a big mess, and they seat the 12 eggs all over the floor, and they decide to hide their iniquity by taking little dish towels and, like, laying them over each of the eggs on the floor. So, you know, mom will never notice that. So she walks into the kitchen, and there's, like, 12 dish towels with an egg under each one. It's kind of this, that sort of level of, of sophistication that's going on here, all right? So <clears throat> now, if I were God and my people who I loved and had given my heart to and everything else to had hurt me like this, and then they tried to hide in this pitiful way, something in me wants to come up and like snatch those fig leaves off and go, uh, 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 you've reaped this shame. You've done this to me. You get to feel every bit of shame you created. All right. We good now. You know, fortunately he doesn't do that. What is God's response? He sees they destroyed the world. He sees they betrayed him. He sees they wounded his own heart. He sees them hiding because of their shame. And the loving father makes his children better clothes. Genesis 3.21. And Yahweh made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. Instead of exposing them to the full blast of his judgment and shame. He's already saying let me protect you. Let me cover you. Hide in me. What could be more comforting to hear? But I got to ask a question at this point. Like, my hand goes up in the back of the class. Where do you get animal skins? Do you ever think about the fact that to cover Adam and Eve's shame at this point, there already had to be bloodshed in the Garden of Eden? Someone had to die cover them. I'm convicted as a person at how easily and quickly I run back to God and I go, yeah, sin and some more. Uh, you forgive me again? You know, you got a lot of that, right? You know, I like sinning, you like forgiving, this is great, right? And I forget this cost that sits right behind the scenes, like in the story. We don't think about it. Somebody had to die. My shame is covered, but somebody else has to pay for it. So he covers his children, but with the blood of another. But he's still not finished loving us here. Because gift number five, there was another tree. And there's this chilling moment to me in this story. Genesis 3, 22 and following, where God says to himself, essentially, he says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, The Bible just has a little dash there. I mean, it's like he doesn't even finish the sentence. It's like you realize you can't find your three-year-old and the back door is open and the back door leads to the pool. You know, you just drop and run. And it immediately goes to, and he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim 
and the flaming sword which points in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what does this mean? Well, people speculate, but one commentator said this, and I I really like it. Think about it. Look at the scene. There's broken relationship. The created order is wrecked. Adam and Eve and their offspring now live in a world that Paul says groans. It is ripped apart. Death destroys. Shame isolates. We are separated from God. And the worst thing that could ever happen at this point, think about it, would be if Adam and Eve could reach out to the tree of life and take and eat and never die. Forever imprisoned in a world separated from God. So God gives this strangely gracious gift. He makes sure that we could never get to the tree of life and live forever. He makes sure that we can die. Death is so bitter, we've all felt it in our lives. It feels obscene, it feels wrong. But unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, God makes sure that though death is the ultimate enemy, it can do its work and it frees us to be with him. So we can't get back to Eden now. Garden of Eden, the place where God was, was sealed, protected, guarded by cherubim. We had swords. Won't let anybody in. But the Garden of Eden is also guarded by cherubim, just like the ones we see somewhere else. In the Temple of Israel, the Holy of Holies was the most sacred chamber in the temple. And it's, in a sense, the place where God was. It contained the uh, Ark of the Covenant, contained the altar. It actually contained the holy presence of God himself. And even the high priest could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And legend says, this isn't in the Bible, but legend says that when the high priest would go in, they tied a rope around his ankle in case the glory of God killed him. They could, like, pull him out without endangering anybody else, which, like I say, it's a legend, but I think it's kind of cool. Anyway, this place where God was, the Holy of Holies, was separated from the rest of the temple and from the people by this barrier, by a veil, by a great curtain that stood like a wall between God and the people, between the most holy place and the people. It was a barrier to Eden, if you will, a barrier to anyone who would enter back into where God was. And do you know what the veil looked like? The Bible tells us. It's in um, Exodus 26, one of those long passages that goes into all this detail about how many cubics this and that, and when he de- describes what the temple looks like. You know those parts you skip over in your quiet time? Anyway, <laughs> Exodus 26, God's telling the artisans of the temple how he wanted it to look, and he tells us what the curtain looked like. They were, they were purple. They were about 40 feet high. If you do the math on what a cubic is, um, they had gold rings on them. And they were embroidered with cherubim. This is not a coincidence, folks. God don't do coincidence, all right? Cherubim are God's guardians, warrior angels, and you don't get past them. 
And God puts them there when he wants to create a barrier. Whether you want to get back into Eden, the place where God was, or you want to get back into the Holy of Holies, the place where God was, we are excluded from the presence of God by angels you do not want to mess with. All right? We've lost our access to God. But there's this story, you see. God came for us. He's looked for us. He's pouring enmity in our relationship with Satan because he wants us back. He's promised a seed. And my friends, that seed does come. And he does battle with the serpent. And he is bruised, I, I assure you. But he crushes the serpent's head. And what happens when he does that? That veil of cherubim rips from top to bottom and the guards are gone and the barriers are gone and you know who takes their place as the gatekeeper to the presence of God? The seed himself. Now Christ stands in the doorway to the presence of God and he welcomes his children home. Because he has paid the debt for the sin of Eden. This is who he is, children of God. If you don't know him here today, this is who he is. He's wild and alive and he wants you. And if you do know who he is, I want you to know him better. And I take it back. I do have an application for you to go home with. You have to leave this place with a renewed awareness that he wants you that bad. Why? I don't know. But this story in Genesis is just a foretaste of what he's willing to do to have you back. How do we not want to know him better? How do we not want to more be like him? Let's pray. Holy God, the one who walked at Eden, the one who wants to walk again with his children, the one who came up with this plan to save us because what you want is for you to be our God and us to be your people and for you to dwell among us. That you want us, you want your people back with you. Lord, our hearts are driven to so many things that aren't you. Tune our hearts to crave dwelling with you. You crave dwelling with us, obviously. Tune our hearts to long for that deeply back, that what we would crave and want more than anything, that we would be as aggressive in pursuing as you are to us, that we would that much seek you, seek your face, seek your heart, to walk with our God. In the name of the seed himself we pray, amen.